Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Well, here we are now in Romans chapter 11, the very end of that chapter, and we're uh, closing out this lengthy section that began in Romans chapter 9, a a section in which it seems as though our confusion has seemed to have escalated, and yet Paul doesn't seem to care. It's as if Paul refuses to answer our every minute question. He just refuses to answer all of these picayune details that we find in his teaching. But he knows that we are asking those questions. And as a good pastor, he answers as the Holy Spirit leads him. And he tells us that which God wants us to know and refuses to answer every minuscule little question that we have. What what a good pastor Paul is. The questions of Romans 9 through 11, if we think about the perspective of the Christians in Rome, these questions seem to come from a desire to understand what God's purpose is, or in fact, if there even is a purpose for all of the unbelief that they see around them. Now, the people of Israel are the main concerns of the Roman Christians, but what Paul is saying to us is something like this. Every person, whether a follower of Jesus or a rejecter of Jesus, is within God's sovereign field of vision. That's what Paul is saying. And so if you are not a believer, you may think that you have pushed God out of your life. But you have not compelled him to push you, put you push yourself out of his life. You can push God out of your life, but he remains the sovereign ruler of the land and you remain, so to speak, in his land. By rejecting his son, you may think that the matter is done and over, but it isn't. And Romans 11 finishes with some evidence of that, that not even unbelief can escape the plan of God. But the real point of this passage is that same reality from the perspective of mature followers of Jesus. 
They are troubled by the unbelief of the world. That's very much the case of the Roman Christians. They're troubled by the unbelief of the world. And so they should be. And so they ask questions like, has God rejected them? Is there any hope for them at all, as they seem to be asking? Have they failed to receive what in their, in their heart of hearts they truly do desire? Have they failed to receive that which in sincerity they do seem to desire? Are their sincere wishes being merely cast aside? Hmm. Is their unbelief just a tool that God uses to prove that hell is real? Is that what's happening Is this their sole purpose in life? And so, you see, it may sound just a bit obsessive for a Christian person to analyze the state of unbelief like this, but would you have it any other way, those of you who are followers of Jesus? I ask you, Christian, have you done away with giving any thought whatsoever to those who hate Jesus? They refuse to follow him. They'll see the error of their ways when he comes again. Uh, My mental energies need to be spent with other more meaningful considerations, like what I'll have for lunch later today. Well, the Christians in Rome, thankfully, they're not like that, and I hope we're not like that. They ponder the unbelievers around them. Why are they there? And what will happen to them? And does God care for them? Is there evidence of that care that I can count on? Are they worthy of my time of gospel proclamation? And so you see, here's the main idea from our passage from Romans 11. God does indeed have a plan for unbelief. And that plan is beyond our comprehension. Our job is to trust his plan even as or especially as we labor in the gospel. God has a plan for unbelief, and that plan's beyond our comprehension. And our job is to trust his plan even as we labor for the gospel. Now, there's a a specific tone that needs to be a part of our reading of this passage, and that tone is a tone of great and abiding reverence. We have to read this passage with a great sense of, of awe. Just as when we began this section in Romans chapter 9, I instructed over and over again that we needed to read uh, Romans 9 through 11 with a sense of uh, somber anguish or a breaking of heart as Paul anguishes over the unbelief of his kinsmen. But here in verse 25 and certainly at the very end in verses 33 through 36, the tone that's requisite for this passage is a tone of great reverence. The best way to understand God is to approach him with great humility. If Paul's about to make them aware of something, he says, I do not want you to be unaware. Literally, I do not want you to be without knowledge. I do not want you to be ignorant. Well, the way to be, uh, the way to avoid being unaware, the Bible tells us over and over again, is to stop leaning upon our own understanding. That's what the Bible says that wisdom is. Wisdom is finding the true source of knowledge to be a knowledge that is revealed from outside of our own mind, a knowledge that God makes known to us, not the kind of knowledge that we fashion ourselves. Most people do assume that knowledge begins with me, my thinking, my analysis, my synthesis, To be wise in my own sight is to be knowledgeable based upon my own analysis. Well, that, to many people, is exactly what knowledge is. That may be what the whole world thinks. 
Well, it's certainly what some Christians think or at least struggle with. Paul even says, lest you be wise in your own sight. Lest you be wise in your own sight. Paul's making some assumptions about us that our temptation is to do that very thing he's telling us not to do, to be wise in our own sight. Paul's showing us our propensity. And we do need to be aware of this fact that Paul is indeed addressing Christians directly and not unbelievers. This uh, finding uh, uh, our own selves to be the great source of wisdom remains a weakness for us even though we're converted We tend to find ourselves wise in our own sight. God has already addressed this problem through the writing of Paul because he's told Christians in Romans 11, 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches, toward those who are not believers. It is quite natural for us to think that we're better than non-believers. This is being wise in our own sight. But what does the revealed word tell us? We are saved not by ourselves. We are saved by God's grace. I have nothing to boast about before non-believers. I am a person who is saved by God's rich mercy and grace. And Paul has already told us, that's verse 18 of chapter 11. He's told us in verse 20, do not become proud, but fear. And as I said last week, I believe this is a reference of how we can sometimes be before God himself. He has saved us in his status as gracious king. But there are times when we seem to be staring him in the face in a prideful way and we speak to him and act before him as if we are equals with him. And really the proper response to God is a response of fear, Paul says, but a response of reverence and awe. And so uh, there in the middle of chapter 11, Paul has already said that we have nothing as Christians on the unbeliever. uh, And I have nothing as a Christian on God, lest you be wise in your own sight. Yes, Paul, to be sure, of course, I tend to find myself wise in my own sight. And I boast before unbelievers. And I boast before God. And Paul has already said that he wants us to stop that. And so this uh, tone of the first part of our passage this morning, verse 25, it actually matches perfectly the tone of verses 33 through 35, the very ending of Romans 11. And listen to what Paul says beginning at verse 33. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Three qualities of God are elevated here. God's wealth and God's wisdom and God's knowledge. In each of these, wealth, wisdom, and knowledge, we are vastly outpaced. I know that that sounds obvious, but Paul wants us to hear that. God's wealth, God's wisdom, and God's knowledge are completely different than our own. And in fact, we know this because each of these, God's wealth, wisdom, and knowledge have been employed for our very salvation. God's wealth perhaps is a reference to the wealthy one who is able to pay the redemption price for our salvation. God's wisdom may perhaps be a reference to God's great counsel within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the counsel of peace for the salvation of God's own children. 
And then God's knowledge perhaps may be a reference to the fact that God is aware of exactly the cost for our salvation. He knows what we need. And so all of those three, which are far beyond that which we have in our own possession, are things that God has employed for our own salvation. And it's two particular actions here in verse 33 that is being praised. One is God's judgments. His decision-making is unsearchable. It's beyond being fathomed. His decision-making. And yet this judge has seen fit to place the punishment we deserve not on us, but on his son. And then God's ways, God's path is inscrutable. I love it when translators translate a different word in the Greek or or, I'm sorry, a difficult word in the Greek for a difficult word in the English. How many of us know what inscrutable actually means? It comes from a Latin word that means to scrutinize, uh, literally means to uh, ransack an idea, to figure something out. And God's ways, God's path, it's not like that. It's inscrutable. God's path cannot be traced out. His path and the story of redemption to save us is beyond our understanding. You see what's happening when uh, the very beginning of verse 25 and then uh, verses uh, 33 through the end of Romans 11, when they pair together, uh, they show us that the proper tone for this deep body of knowledge that Paul is going to lay before us is a tone of great reverence. So we want to pause here. And Paul is saying that the key to our own knowledge and our own wisdom is actually to reflect upon the unknowable quality of God's own knowledge and wisdom. The key to not being uh, trapped by a knowledge and wisdom in our own sight is an understanding of the knowledge and wisdom of God himself. Uh, This uh, is saying that to understand uh, who we are, we have to understand who God is. And when we understand who God is, we better understand who we are. Well, to understand God, Paul is saying, is unsearchable and inscrutable. How will I know anything about him? Well, it's certainly not going to be by something that comes from inside of you. Knowledge of God comes from what he chooses to share with us in his word. He makes himself known. He chooses what we are to know. And he gives us an indwelling Holy Spirit that gives us an understanding of that which he has revealed to us in his word. And the world would say to us that we need to go off into a corner and think deep thoughts, but we'll never arrive at truth that way. We won't understand God and we won't understand ourselves. And I want to drive this home. The only other place in the New Testament where the particular vocabulary of verse 33 shows up is two places. One is in Colossians 2 verse 3, and the other is in Ephesians 3 verse 8. And when we look at these passages, we uh, hear uh, echoes of the vocabulary of verse 33. Uh, Colossians 2 3 says this, 
There, Paul says that Christians are knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I think that Pastor Molinax mentioned this very verse in his prayer. We go to Colossians 2, 3, and we begin to pick out this similar vocabulary. But let me read Ephesians 3, 8 first and then tie them together. Ephesians 3, 8 says that though I am the very least of all the saints, Paul talking about himself, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, Paul would not say that he has no knowledge of God. Paul would instead say that he has knowledge of God that has come to him through the Word and through Christ who is the embodiment of God's revealed Word. And so for us, the key to knowledge and wisdom is knowing the wealth, wisdom, and knowledge of God. This means trusting that that which he reveals to us in his Word is truth and it's what we need to understand about him. This means that uh, knowing who God is is not fabricating for ourselves uh, bits and pieces that tie all of those verses together. What we're to know about God, we ought not add to. So Colossians and Ephesians teach us that knowing Christ is knowing the one in whom all the treasures of, of wisdom and knowledge of God are placed. Knowing Christ is knowing just enough to be able to preach the good news of the gospel, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Isn't it remarkable that we could have this kind of knowledge, a knowledge that is sourced from outside, a a knowledge that we must rely upon God to feed us and to grow in us. And yet, all the same, not being able to craft our own knowledge, we still are called to be a people who lay before the world the word of that knowledge in Christ Jesus to preach the gospel. Oh, we seem to know so very little about God. All that we have is his word before us. And I'd love to know far more, certainly before I go out into the world and hold forth the gospel. But Paul says that's not needed. God has told us what we need to know, that we might go into the world and proclaim the gospel. God has told us that we, what we need to know, that we might know who Jesus Christ is. And so when Paul says to be not wise in our own sight, he is saying to trust the work of God through the preaching of his own gospel. Now, he has more to say to us, but he's told us already that uh, that the gospel is something that is more powerful than our understanding, that God does have a plan for unbelief that's beyond our comprehension, but we have a job to do as Christians, and it's to trust that plan even as we're preaching the gospel. Now, there's a couple of mysteries that Paul introduces us to. Sometimes in Scripture, I wonder uh, why uh, a writer of Scripture would tell us anything at all. It's just too confusing. I can't wrap my mind around it. Why would you even uh, bother with trying to explain this, Paul? Just let me uh, assume it's territory that doesn't belong to me. But Paul doesn't do that. By the Holy Spirit, he gives us two mysteries. He says that there is a mystery with regards to unbelief. 
the unbelief that we see in the world around us. And he says that there is a mystery with regards to God's mercy, the working of his mercy, the application of his mercy. But first, in the second half of verse 25 through verse 27, there's a mystery regarding the unbelief around the Roman Christians. He says that there is a partial hardening that has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is the second half of verse 25. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What is he saying here? And notice that uh, there are some things that he is revealing rather clearly. Uh, One is this, uh, in the place of the story of redemption in which the Roman Christians find themselves, Paul is saying that unbelief has dulled the heart of many or most of the Jews. In their place, in the story of redemption, Paul is saying a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Paul has told them that, a, that this hardening, already he has told them that this hardening is a deliberate unbelief. And so uh, this hardening is a refusal to believe in Jesus. But Paul is saying to these Christians, and he is saying to us, that this is a partial hardening. That right now, there is a refusal to believe in Jesus that seems to be prevailing in the world, and specifically among those who would seem to be most advantaged, the people of Israel. And we need to take this at face value, that there is a partial hardening that has come upon Israel in the time of the Roman Christians, and it would seem to be in our time as well. Paul says that uh, while, to be sure, this is just a partial, it doesn't include everyone. He says that it is bound by time. Paul says that this period of time is actually being controlled by God. This dullness among the Jews, this dullness among unbelievers around us, Paul is saying is not only partial, meaning that it doesn't affect the entire population of the Jews, He's also saying that it's bounded up in time. The unbelief serves a purpose of gospel expansion among Gentile people. Paul has already said this, and we didn't understand it then, and perhaps we don't understand it now, but Paul has already said uh, that Gentile belief, if it's sincere, is going to become a gospel proclamation in and of itself. That is, uh, Gentiles come to faith in Jesus Christ and uh, follow him in their lives. Uh, Paul has said that that life, that close communion with God, will somehow serve to inflame jealousy among some of the Jewish people. The closeness that we have with God through union with Christ should in some way be a gospel proclamation to unbelievers. And that may be what Paul is talking about here. That this hardening, it's a partial hardening. It doesn't affect all Jews and it doesn't affect all unbelievers. But also it's a kind of hardening that is bounded by God's time. There is a kind of a fullness that Paul says is yet to happen. uh, That uh, the partial hardness is the kind of hardness that God is limiting for some reason. Perhaps that reason is that Jewish people would see the great faith of Gentile believers and their closeness to God through the doctrine of grace. 
But there is something else. This unbelief, it is partial. And this unbelief is limited in time in some way. But Paul goes on to say something very thorny indeed. Paul says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now that's difficult. It's hard to know what exactly Paul means by that. We certainly know this much that Paul is saying that the end of the story, while we don't know it, that's okay. We're not to be leaning upon our own understanding anyhow. We're not to be wise in our own sight. Our ignorance, our lack of knowledge, that's actually okay. We're not sure what fullness means, and we're not sure of what all Israel will be saved means. But let us not think for a moment that God himself doesn't know what's going to happen. Let us not think that the end of the story is unknown by me and it's unknown by God as well. It's unknown by you. It's not unknown by God. He knows both the fullness of the Gentiles and he knows the allness of Israel. And we shouldn't think that fullness of the Gentiles means that every Gentile will ultimately be saved. I think that's foolhardy. Else why preach the gospel? But the same also applies for Israel. I don't think that we should understand this, that all Israel will ultimately be saved, means that every Jew is ultimately to be saved. That seems not to work very well with Romans 9, verses 6 through 7, where Paul says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. Our understanding is roped in a bit. And we can admit that we don't understand what the fullness of the Gentiles refers to in time. And we don't understand what the, uh, the salvation of all of Israel means in time. But we know who does know. And Paul wants to make sure that we understand that, uh, that there is a part of God's plan in which God uh, turns himself away and he lets the chips fall where they lie. That's not how the sovereign king works and so uh, in addition to saying that the unbelief is partial and in addition to saying that the unbelief is limited in time uh, he also says that the unbelief it doesn't fool god god knows who are his you know i think that none of us who trust scripture should miss how remarkably positive verse 26 is It's almost as if Paul is teasing our imagination. He seems to be uh, hinting by going back to Isaiah 59 that there will come a time when the partial hardening will be loosened, when the fullness of the Gentiles arrives, and when the number of Israel who believe in Jesus will actually increase such that Gentiles will say, the time of partial hardening is over. I think as as Paul uh, unfolds uh, this passage and looks back to the celebratory quality of Isaiah 59, he is enticing our imaginations to imagine a time when the partial hardening will be so rolled back that the Gentiles will notice it and they will see an influx of belief among the ethnic people of Israel. I don't know what that means, 
And I'm sure you don't know what that means. And I know it's dangerous territory for pretending that we know what that means. But there is an aspect of a delight that flows from Paul's pen as he writes Romans 11. You know I know he's not writing with a pen, right? But just go back a little bit. I mean, look at Romans 11, verse 12, in which Paul invites us to imagine what it would be like for the full inclusion of the people of Israel, for every member of Israel to become a follower of Christ. Now, I don't think the Bible teaches that this will happen, but Paul invites us to imagine. And he does this again in Romans 11, verse 15, when he says, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, meaning their rejection serves to show the gospel, he says, what will their acceptance of Jesus then mean? Filled with optimism. Why? Because we know what's going to happen in the fullness of the Gentiles, and we know what's going to happen in the salvation of all of Israel. No. There's excitement and there's delight because of the power of the gospel. And Paul would have us never lose focus on the work of the gospel. That's exactly where he's taking us before he closes Romans 11. Now, of course, of course, we need to be careful here. God does not promise a special means of salvation for Israel. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ Jesus. No ethnicity, no obedience, no historical connection will save. Never. But clearly Paul is saying that not only should Gentiles not boast before unbelievers, should they not boast before God, But Gentiles should not stop preaching the gospel to unbelievers wherever they find them. And that's the message that Paul has for every Christian in the Roman congregation. And this this includes uh, not stopping to preach or not stopping the preaching of the gospel before Israel. Any unbeliever, regardless of their close affinity to Israel, regardless of their close affinity to the church that they have then rejected, well, every unbeliever needs to hear the gospel. That's what we're called to do as the church of Jesus Christ. And so we have to leave verse 26 imagining that while not all ethnic Israel will be saved, God is at work and he's not done and he has a plan. And his eyes are particularly on that body of people called Israel. That much is clear in this passage. God has a plan for unbelief that is beyond our comprehension. And our job is to trust his plan as we labor in the gospel. Now there's another mystery. And we see it in verse 28. Although the word mystery doesn't reappear there, there is another mystery, and it's a mystery regarding God's mercy. And Paul uses two phrases to help us understand two ways of seeing God's plan. And this is where I think that illustration of standing on a frozen river is helpful. Paul's two phrases are in verse 28. He talks about the kind of understanding that we have as regards the gospel, literally according to the gospel. And then he talks about another kind of understanding that we have as regards election, literally according to election. And as we preach the gospel to unbelievers, their hard unbelief, it almost makes them enemies before us. In fact, we may feel as though they may as well be enemies before us. This is harsh language, but let's think about this. 
Can we admit that there have been times where we have thought that someone is so uh, stalwart in their hatred of Jesus Christ that they'll never become believers? I've preached to them over and over and over again. It's never going to happen. I know it. Paul uses here harsh language. But this is often why we turn to a position of arrogance before some unbelievers. They refuse to listen. And we think them beneath us. We think them already damned. We think them beyond help. And that also lends to our arrogance before God. We uh, hope to stand next to, next, next to God, shoulder to shoulder with God, and to be able to look out at those unbelievers and say, God, I preached the gospel. You know, I did over and over again. Aren't they pathetic? And sometimes the hard-heartedness of unbelief can make us think that they are our enemies. But from God's perspective, let's not assume that God's reacting the way we react to unbelief. From the vantage point of election, God's view alone, Scripture tells us that God is the only one who has electing power. From the vantage point of election, the one that you call an enemy, well, they may actually be mightily beloved by God. Do you believe that? There's an awkward scripture and passage, and it's in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. I'll read it to you. It's awkward. We read in 2 Peter 3, 9 this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's an awkward verse, isn't it? 2 Peter 3, 9. Now, God is addressing Christians here, but there is more than a hint that the one that you are calling uh, insatiably hard-hearted, an unbeliever who is worthy only to be your enemy, hmm, there's more than a hint here that he may actually be called by God his child. And you just don't know it yet. Working as a minister of the gospel... It's such vulnerable work, isn't it? All of us, we pray and we uh, study and we look for opportunities. All of us in a proclamation of the gospel, we uh, battle our own fears and our own insecurities. And we stammer and we feel vulnerable as we preach the good news in so many different ways. Uh, Vulnerability before them because they may ask us questions we cannot answer and we may look foolish but also vulnerability before God because we're not sure if we really believe that this person is a savable material. And the truth of the matter is that vulnerability, it's not going to go away. And that's not even the half of it. The vulnerability is more intense than that. Everything about the power of the gospel is beyond our control. Even if we think we've checked all the right checkboxes, we've studied well, uh, we have practiced our elocution well, We've studied philosophy, and we've studied this individual with whom I'll be sharing the gospel with, and we have strategically found just the right opportunity. We can do all of those things, check all of those boxes. And yet, the power of the gospel, it's entirely beyond our control. We believe the gospel. We're called to display the gospel before others, commanded to display the gospel before others. But we are promised nothing. 
As regards the gospel, there is nothing for us but hope and vulnerability. Hope and vulnerability. And as regards election, however, God has something more than hope and vulnerability. Doesn't that make you so happy? God never feels what you feel in the proclamation of the gospel. I have blind hope and I have vulnerability. God never feels that. As regards election, there's something more. And we're called to find our comfort in that fact. That God has a plan for unbelief that is beyond our comprehension. And our job is to trust his plan as we labor forward in the gospel. Now very quickly. I want us to go back to that illustration that I offered to our little theologians of standing on a half frozen river. And seeing beneath you something move and not knowing what it is unless that something that moved beneath you uh, goes down the river and you can see it there. I want to th- use an illustration of ice fishing. A friend of mine uh, uh, made plans to go uh, fishing and invited me to come. I was unable to come. I've been ice fishing before. I think I may have had uh, quite enough of that and so I declined the opportunity. And when he returned, I asked him uh, how it went. And, of course, he was uh, very happy and excited. And I said, you know, you you just don't know when something's going to happen. You're just kind of sitting around a hole waiting for something to happen. And he said, well, I fished with a guide who used an endoscope. And I had never heard of that before. He drilled one hole for the fishing line, and he drilled another hole for the endoscope that he uh, put underneath the ice so that he could see uh, the fish I just had never heard of that. It makes sense now, but that was beyond my comprehension. That endoscope actually gives the fisherman an opportunity to see really what's happening beneath the ice. And I wonder if verse 30 is an endoscopic passage. How is it that we know what it is that is God's will for the working of unbelief and the working of salvation in the world? And Paul makes this passage so immediately personal in verse 30. He says, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. Do we ever think much about our life before the gospel? Of course, I'm addressing you as a Christian person. Do you imagine your life before the gospel? If you grew up in the church and uh, imagining your life before the gospel is a hard kind of thing, um, do you ever imagine what your life would be like uh, without the gospel? Do you know how the Bible describes that person? The Bible says that that kind of life that is a life without the gospel is a life that is full of following the course of the world, a life full of following the prince of the power of the air, a life of living along or among our passions, a life of living as children of wrath, dead in our trespasses, a life that is foolish and disobedient, that is led astray, a life of being slaves to various passions and pleasures, a life of passing our days in malice and envy, a life in which we are alienated and hostile in mind, a life in which we are far from God. But now, Christian, what are you? Do you ever think that way? If it's happened to you, 
Can it not happen to someone else? The the endoscopic uh, searching of your soul should show you you are a believer in Christ whose heart has been regenerated by his rich mercy and united to him in such a way that he is with you always and will be with you always. You have been brought near. But let's not think too highly of ourselves. If it can happen to me, if it can happen to me, and if it can happen to you. And Paul invites us to look into our own souls and to understand how this actually happened to me. And Paul says, it is God's mercy, his mercy, his mercy. He did not consign me to disobedience. Uh, He actually has saved me. He has shown me his mercy. And the best way to understand the mystery of God's application of mercy to the unbeliever is to understand that application of mercy to my own soul. I was at one time under God's wrath represented by Adam, but now I'm represented by the second Adam and will never experience condemnation for my sins. How has that happened? It has happened by God's mercy. And if it's happened to you, might it happen to someone else? This is what we're called to believe with every fiber of our being. This is what we're called to believe with every fiber of our eternally saved being. This is our life. We believe in the power of the gospel. We know that God has a plan for unbelief. And we know that that plan for unbelief is beyond our comprehension. However, I know whom I've believed. And I know that I'm undeserving. And I know... That with every part of my life, I am to be the kind of person who makes Jesus known. And I trust that God has a plan, even for unbelievers, as I labor in the gospel. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your warm affection. Thank you that we are called to labor in that gospel. Thank you for those who hear and believe. We thank you even those who hear and do not believe. Your plan is at work. Thank you for saving us compel us to proclaim that message of salvation to others. In your name, amen.